Well, good morning. Like I haven't already been talking to you. <laughs> Take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11. We'll pick up where we left off yesterday. Yesterday we saw how, uh, really how much Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And even though he had this, this deep connection with them, his love did not prevent the tragedy of Lazarus dying. His love did not prevent the sorrow experienced by Mary, Martha, and, and those around him. But Jesus' love did provide hope. Uh, and so we, uh, we pick up where we left. Actually, we'll back up just a, a little bit. Uh, back up to verse 25 for a little bit of overlap. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you, calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it's laying out for us who Jesus really is, how he really responds in, in moments of sorrow and loss, uh, how he loves, how he desires to make the reality of who he is known. As we'll see as this passage unfolds, he, he wants people to know that he is the Christ, that he is truly God, that he truly has power over life and death. Uh, Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to be so convinced of it that we can't help but tell people about it. So, Father, guide my lips. Use your spirit to, uh, to encourage us from the word this morning. In your son's name, amen. John records a number of miraculous acts in his gospel that all play out before the crucifixion. They, they range from impressive feats, uh, some that we've talked about, uh, the changing of the water into wine. That's amazing, right? Uh, and, and that particular one uh, happened to where only a few people knew what Jesus had done. Uh, if you look back at, at John chapter 2, uh, the, the people that knew that Jesus had done this would be Mary, uh, the, the servants who served the wine, who poured the water in and poured the, poured the wine out, uh, and his disciples. Very, very few people really knew what happened at that wedding. Uh, there are other times that Jesus did some amazing things that were a little more public, uh, such as what we looked at Sunday, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does the impossible in front of cr a crowd of thousands and, and, and uh, 
and does this, this miracle. Uh, but this very last one, uh, this last one that John records, uh, is very near the event that will literally change the course of history. It is this last miracle recorded in John, not, not necessarily the last thing that he did, but the last one recorded in John that sets the stage for his own resurrection. That's why it seemed fitting to sing the resurrection hymn this morning. That's not at all about Lazarus, but that's what Lazarus is pointing to. His resurrection is pointing to the fact that Jesus would rise again, which is pointing to the fact that you and I as believers will also rise again. Our big idea is listed there in your booklet. God wants us to live with a gospel motivation. We'll talk about uh, how that works, what that looks like as we go through. Uh, But just remember, Jesus was with his disciples in, in our passage yesterday. Lazarus was ill, and he, instead of jumping up and running there as fast as he could, he waits. He waits two entire days before going. So he goes to Bethany. Martha hears that Jesus is coming. She runs out to meet him before he ever even gets to the house and is, is talking. And remember what Martha said? She goes, Lord, I know that if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Did you notice that in verse 32? Uh, no, that's what, that was Martha in verse 32. That, yeah. She says the same thing. Mary says the same thing in verse 32 that Martha had said previously. I will get my mind here. Sorry. Uh, neither Martha nor Mary are being accusative. They say basically the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. They're not accusing him of anything. What they're doing is they're showing faith. We know that you could have stopped this. But he didn't. And we find Mary and Martha mourning. Now, in our culture, we mourn in a, a way that looks considerably different than the way they would have mourned. We will tear up, we will cry, we'll get choked up when we talk, we may sob, but we do not wail. Unless you're a two-year-old and someone has your toy. They'll wail. Oh my goodness. Remember, this was probably a couple months ago now. Uh, one of my two younger children uh, was in the, the nursery, which is right next to our bedroom, and it was like a, it was my day off. I was just resting in there, not getting up any earlier than I have to, and I hear one say to the other, you're a punk, and the other one say back, no, you're a punk, and it went back and forth, no, you're a punk, no, you're a punk, no, you're, and it got so loud. They were yelling and screaming at each other while I was trying to rest. Two-year-olds can get pretty loud when things aren't going their way. In the Middle Eastern culture, when they wail, when they are in mourning, they will just, at the top of their lungs, beller out, cry out, and and make an incredible sound. Um, Nothing is held back when they do that. That illustration of a small child screaming at the top of their lungs uh, works because they don't hold back either. Two-year-olds just don't. Mary is wailing. Family and friends with the community were wailing with her. Uh, In fact, this was common practice for them. Uh, If they didn't have enough family or they just wanted to make a bigger spectacle of it, they would actually hire people to come in and wail with them. Can you imagine the noise? 
I mean, it's disconcerting. When, when a child falls and hurts himself and actually hurts himself, that cry, not the, eh, I, I hurt myself, scrape my knee, you want a piece of candy? Oh, yeah, not that kind of cry. The kind of cry where they're actually hurt. That's a disconcerting sound. Now, imagine a bunch of adults doing that and going on and on and on. This is the scene that Jesus is a part of now. People are wailing at the top of their lungs. They would wail. Uh, the, the friends and family and the hired people would come in and wail in private in the house. They would go out in public, and, and as we read in the scripture, uh, that's what they thought Mary was doing. She got up. They thought, well, okay, we're going to continue this, this cacophony of noise, this wailing with her as she goes to the tomb. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, if you're taking notes, our first point this morning is that Jesus' love is emotional. And we're going to see that his emotion is wide-ranging. It's a diamond with many facets. Uh, most of our English translations here do not portray the level of emotion or even the type of emotion that Jesus is exhibiting here. It says uh, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Reading that just straight through in English would give us the sense that he was agitated, that he was upset, and that would not be inaccurate. Um, why would he be agitated and, and upset? Well, of course, because his friend died. Lazarus has died. Uh, Mary and Martha, those people who are still living that he loves dearly, are, are in, in an emotional peril. But the original language paints a very different picture. Uh, there's one English translation I found that, that actually states it very well. And, and here's how the New Living Translation puts the same verse. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Did you hear the difference? First of all, they used the correct word, the people were wailing, not weeping, they were wailing. Uh, and secondly, it says that a deep anger welled up within him. Jesus was not just moved by sadness of the moment. He was angered by the helplessness that the wailers were, were providing. Uh, that sense of helplessness that, that, that this death was, was the end, that there was nothing more that could be done. They still did not understand who he was. This is Jesus. This is God the Son who came to earth to kill death, to conquer the greatest nemesis of mankind, that great enemy, death. And as Jesus has specifically come to Bethany to demonstrate this power, remember he told his disciples yesterday, uh, I'm glad that we didn't go. Uh, I'm glad that we waited, that we came later so that the glory of God could be revealed. Uh, in fact, Jesus told them yesterday, Lazarus is asleep and I go to wake him. And when they didn't understand that he was talking about death and he explained it, they didn't catch that when he talked about being awake, he was going to rise him from the dead. And so this, this sense of helplessness and hopelessness should not have been true of his followers. But they were right there. They were right there wailing along with them. Verse 35 in our English Bible is the shortest verse. Jesus wept. Much ink has been spilled over these two words. Whole books have been written about this one verse. Jesus wept. 
we're obviously not going to go through all that detail in this little bit of time. But I do want to make one note that I believe John is really emphasizing in this verse. When it says Jesus wept, he's not using the same word that he used when he talked about Mary weeping or, or the Jews that had come to weep with her. The word that he uses for them is that of wailing, where the emphasis is upon the noise being made in the process of mourning. The word that's used here in verse 35 is what we would think of as weep, as a silent, tearful moment. And it's really unfortunate that our English translations don't bring that out. Because Jesus' sorrow, Jesus' moment of, of deep emotional turmoil is different than that of anyone around him. Because he knows. He knows that death does not have the final say. He's always known that. That's why he let Lazarus die. Even if he wasn't going to raise Lazarus from the dead, death never had the final say, and Jesus knew that. That's why he doesn't mourn like the other people mourn. Jesus weeps. He does not wail. Jesus loved Lazarus. He mourns the sadness of his death. He mourns for his family. He mourns for his own personal loss. But he also mourns the continued ignorance of those around him who should know better. His disciples that have seen all these miracles and still don't get it. Whom he very clearly said to him, I'm going to wake him. The euphemism of sleep for death was so common that he shouldn't have had to explain it. He said, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. They don't get it. They, he, he mourns for their ignorance. He mourns that they don't yet recognize that he is God. The Jews respond in verse 36, see how he loved them? They understand a little bit of what Jesus is going through, but not at all the, the full scope. Uh, but in that, same, in that same moment, verse 37, don't you see how the how some people still in this moment of sorrow, of, uh, where he's exhibiting this, this loss, they say, well, he's, he's not powerful enough to do it, is he? I mean, if he really gave sight to the blind man, surely he could have prevented this illness, right? Isn't that what they're saying? Uh, why do you think Jesus is angry? There is a lack of faith by those who follow him, and there's uh, abject denial of who he is by those who aren't really following him. The Son of God deserves to be worshipped for who he is. Not, not rendered uh, powerless because, well, I mean, if Jesus was here, he could have done something, but now it's too late. No. Yes, Jesus loved Lazarus. Yes, he mourned. Uh, but more than mourning for Lazarus, he's angry. He's mourning over the fact that he is being degraded, that the glory that is rightfully due to him is being degraded, that the Son of God is not being honored as God the Son. So we see a wide range of emotions from Jesus. Secondly, we see that his actions become evangelistic in nature, and, and I'll have to explain that as we get through it. Beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, and again, this is anger. This is the same terminology used earlier. And then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, 
Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. This is the one verse that I wish I had the King James in front of me. Those of you who have it, he stinketh, yeah. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In this section of the scripture, we see uh, three commands. The first is take away the stone. And what happens? Martha says, oh, you don't want to do that, Lord. No, you don't want to do that. He stinks. He's been dead for four days. This is not going to be a good thing. Don't do it. Isn't that Martha's personality? You know Martha and Mary from other passages of Scripture. Uh, Mary is the one sitting and worshiping at Jesus' feet while Martha's going around getting dinner ready. And she's upset because she's doing all the work and Mary's just sitting there. Isn't it like Martha to try and take control of a situation? Oh, absolutely. And that's what she's doing here. Lord, no, <laughs> you don't want to do that. Now, really, what did you say just a few moments ago? Didn't, didn't she say, I know that you are the Christ who is coming into the world? I know that you're the promised one. And yet when Jesus says, open the, the tomb, uh, Martha's like, oh, are you sure about that? He stinks. The Jewish people thought that, had this, this understanding. This is not a biblical understanding. You're not going to find this in the scripture. But they had this idea that when someone passes away, that their spirit would remain nearby for up to four days. And it's possible that that happened because maybe someone wasn't actually dead and within a couple days came back to life. And so they had these stories that, that kind of went around. And, and for whatever reason, they believed that the spirit was, would leave on the fourth day. So there's a significance that this is the fourth day. If there was any hope for someone coming back to life, Lazarus has passed through that. There is no more hope for him. So when, uh, when Jesus stayed for two days, there was that intention there. Because he could have come right away. And as we said yesterday, Lazarus was probably already dead by the time they heard the news. So he'd only been dead for maybe a couple days by the time they got to, uh, to the tomb. But just to make sure that everybody knew that Lazarus was indeed dead, he waited. So the fourth day comes. Uh, Lord, there will, it's going to stink. Uh, by the way, there, there being an odor is, is a very mild expression in, in the Greek. It comes out more like, Lord, it's going to reek. <laughs> Don't open it. But Jesus re responds. He just gently turns to her and says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So she knew what he said. She believed what he said. But that belief hadn't really deeply seated yet. And he reminds her, I, I told you that, uh, that I was going to do this. So they open up, open up the tomb. And, and Jesus tells us that his purpose in raising Lazarus is to display the glory of God. His purpose is not because his friends are mourning and he wants to make that right. Okay, does Jesus want to help people when they're mourning? Oh, Absolutely. But he doesn't raise Lazarus because his friends are mourning. He does not raise Lazarus because Lazarus was his friend and he misses Lazarus. In fact, you can make the very real case that raising Lazarus from the dead was doing no favors to Lazarus. 
The dude had to die again. How is that nice? As a pastor, I've had plenty of opportunities to be with someone in their final hours. And to see someone struggling to breathe, many of you have been there too, to see someone struggling to breathe and knowing uh, that their time is near, Lazarus has already gone through that. Uh, he wasn't killed in some drive-by chariot accident. He was killed by a, a slow-moving illness that took his life. And his sisters all went through that with him. And now he's going to have to go through that again. Raising Lazarus was not for Lazarus' sake. It was not. It was so that people would see the glory of God, so that they would believe Jesus had an evangelistic purpose in raising Lazarus. So he says, Lazarus, come out. Imagine being there in the crowd. First of all, they've rolled the stone away, and that stink is there. Okay, It is a real thing. And they're smelling it, and Jesus is saying, Lazarus, come on out. And he does. He comes out. He's bound in, his, in those grave clothes. And they, they, didn't really, they didn't mummify him like the Egyptians. They were bigger cloths, but still, he was bound up. He wasn't able to move very well. He was like hobbling like this. And Jesus has to tell him the third command. What's he say? He says, unbind him. Why do you think he had to tell him that? They're all shocked, right? They're sitting there going, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Sure enough, Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Now, remember the scene. Who's there? It's not just Jesus. It's not just Jesus, Mary, and Martha. It's other family members. It's other people from the community who are mourning. There are a ton of witnesses. Witnesses that some of which are not really that close so that they're more of a, actually a good third-party witness. Uh, that empty, hopeless sound that they were uh, wailing out a moment ago has certainly now turned into celebration. No wonder Jesus has been experiencing a wide range of emotion, that sorrow from genuine loss, the sympathy for those who are mourning, the, uh, the, the perceived hopelessness that the people are, are exhibiting, even though God himself is there and is ready to fix it. Now with one command, he has indisputably made clear that he has the power over death. When he turned the water into wine... And that was amazing. That was amazing. He took water into dirty pots and turned it into the better wine for that wedding feast. When he would heal the sick, uh, that, that soldier's son who was far away, or, or the crippled man, or the blind man, when he would heal the sick, that's awesome. Can you imagine being that blind man or that crippled person who had been so for, for decades, and all of a sudden you're made whole? That is awesome. But this... Raising from the dead? Who's even heard of that? It would be unbelievable. Except people saw it. They saw Lazarus die. They know that he was dead. They know that he was dead long enough that he was stinking, that there was clearly no life in that body. And here he is, whole. Jesus' love showed a great range of emotions. His purpose in raising Lazarus was, was an evangelistic purpose. But finally, and just we're not going to spend a lot of time in this next section, uh, but Jesus' love is infuriating. 
Now, if you're trying to make that parallel with the rest of them, emotional, evangelistic, and infuriating, and if you start them all with E, you've spelled something wrong, just so you know. You would think that such an amazing and compassionate miracle that people would love him. That people would be like, ha, 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 man, I thought all those other things were great, but you are really the man. We are going to make you king right now. There is no way that I'm going to follow anyone else. Yet, read with me in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They ratted him out. They weren't telling him because, oh, this is exciting. You should have seen it. They're telling him because they know what the Pharisees want. The Pharisees have been made, making it very clear that they want Jesus dead. And so they're stoking the fire, as it were. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. By the way, isn't that neat that they think they can do something about it? Isn't that neat? The man who is God himself that can raise people from the dead. Yeah, we're going to stop him. <laughs> All right. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. You just want to say that in your church, don't you, Steve? I heard you laugh. I heard you laugh. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans, plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Jesus' miracles were infuriating to the religious leaders. They hated him because of the things that he was doing. And this was the tipping point. There is no turning back. There is nothing that would stop them in their pursuit of Jesus' death. Did you know Caiaphas' prophecy in verse 50? He says, don't you understand that it's, it's better for the one man to die for the nation? He prophesied this because God, God made him prophesy it, but he had no idea how true words those were. He had no idea that the death of Jesus was going to create salvation for all who would believe. But not him. Right? Isn't that terrifying? It's terrifying to me that there can be preachers of truth that don't know Jesus. Right? And if it's true of Caiaphas, who is a religious leader, who is proclaiming a very true statement that Jesus is going to die for the nation, and not just this nation, but for the whole world, that they may all be gathered into one people then how possible is it for other church leaders to be like that? For people who are in my church that know all the answers to everything, that live a good life on the outside, seeming, seemingly live a good life, uh, could they be unsaved? Yeah, there could be some. It's terrifying to me as a pastor that there could be someone who looks like a believer and is indiscernible to me that they're not, that they could sit in my church and hear the word of God. There's a reason I keep bringing up the gospel and the truths of the gospel, even in a crowd that is probably all believers. Because there might be someone here who doesn't really know yet, who hasn't really received Jesus as their Savior, doesn't really believe fully, doesn't trust in Jesus for their eternal salvation. Caiaphas knew that what he said was true, that this man would die for the people, and so he used it to justify his desire to kill Jesus. 
Even a corrupt, ungodly prophet is being used by God to foretell the gospel. It's amazing to me. Jesus loves. He loves me. He loves you. It's that love that pushed him to the cross. Jesus' love was dynamic. It had many moving parts. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus very deeply. He loved the Father so much that when his reputation was being degraded by these people who were mourning as though they had no hope, it angered him. Jesus' love was demonstrated by actions beyond that of just the feelings or the tears. And yet, he was disparaged by the religious leaders of the day. In your booklet, God wants us to live with a gospel motivation. It's our big idea, and here's what I mean. I already said it, but Jesus did not raise Lazarus because he loved Lazarus. Or because he loved Mary, or because he loved Martha. Pulling Lazarus out of paradise was not exactly a loving thing to do for Lazarus. He didn't do this because he loved them. He did this because it promoted the gospel message. It proved that everything that he said about himself was true, that he really is the Messiah come into the world to save the world. He did it because it confirmed to what he had said to Martha earlier, back in verses 25 and 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if you die by believing in me, you will live. And this is the proof. He raised Lazarus because he wanted the gospel to be made known. If that's our big idea, that's our main point, how can we do that? I mean, because I can't go and raise people from the dead. It's okay. I can still have a gospel motivation in everything else I do, right? In our particular situation, it might mean going to coffee, wherever you do that, or whatever you go for, if the coffee's not your thing. Uh, and going at a particular time of day where you know there are people that you can talk to, because maybe you've, you've visited with someone at one point and you know that they're unsaved. Um, there's a little coffee shop in town that I like to go to, and, and I, I've only been there a handful of times, but I already know some of the regulars, because they're always there at the same time. And maybe it's, it's readjusting your schedule to go at the times that they're going to be there so that you can strike up a conversation sometime, that, that the, a relationship uh, would grow, that small talk turns into a, a relationship that turns into an opportunity to share Christ. It might happen very quickly, but it also might happen very slowly. But you do that. You, you, uh, you make a slight alteration in your schedule because you have a gospel motivation. Maybe it's not coffee. Maybe you hate coffee. Figure it out in your life. What are some of the, the small little things that you can do to uh, that maybe are inconvenient to you. I, I told you earlier that I exercise. Um, we have a, a very nice uh, wellness center in our town, and um, I've figured out that going early, uh, people are in a hustle and bustle, and you're not going to talk to anybody. I've also learned that going late, uh, going later in the day, people are in a hustle and bustle after work to try and get their exercise in and go to work, and they're not going to talk to you. But guess what? Right after lunchtime, man, you can talk to all sorts of people. Or the last hour that they're open of the day. You can talk to all sorts of people. And so guess what? It's not necessarily convenient for me to go to those hours, but those are the hours that I go because I want to talk to people and, and build some relationships. And I've had the opportunity to share the gospel a couple times. Have, have I seen someone get saved yet? No, but I'm there. And, and I'm doing it because of a gospel motivation. Another thing that we've done. Um, we live in a parsonage, uh, so our ch our church has a, a nice big property and our house is in the corner of it 
and they built a nice, nice cement patio in the back, and so it, it's open to a nice great big lawn where the kids can play and we can watch bunnies frolic because our kids like to go out and watch bunnies. And we've got a little fire pit and we've got a grill and it's a wonderful place to be in our backyard. Last year, the bushes in front of the house were dead and so the trustees pulled them out and so all we have now is this, uh, this river rock bed. You know what I'm talking about, those smoother rocks, uh, a, a gravel little bed there and we're like, what, what should we do with that? Uh, the, the trustees were like, well, let's plant some more bushes because that's what we put out. We should put bushes back in. We're like, no, let's not do that. So we bought a couple of the Adirondack chairs that they're selling here at camp. They're $100. That may not be the cheapest chair that you can find, but it goes to a good cause, so go ahead and buy them yourself. Uh, we put a couple of Adirondack chairs out there, and we, we're getting some potted plants to put out there to, to decorate and look nice. Why? Is the front yard a good place for us to sit when you've got that backyard? No, the backyard's awesome. But people walk by the front yard. There's not a single soul that I've ever seen walk past my backyard that didn't know Jesus. The people that walk in the backyard are church people because they're coming to see us, right? The front yard is where the people are. Now, my, my sitting out front, because we've got a nice shade tree, might my sitting out front ever lead to a gospel conversation? It might not, but it might. Sitting in the backyard won't. So this is just a little tiny change that we've made at our house that's gospel-motivated. And if you do lots of little things like that where, where you have the gospel front and center in your motivation, in your mind, uh, you'll find that you will have more opportunities. We've been able to meet some of the neighbors that we hadn't met before because we were sitting out in the front yard, even though we have an amazing backyard. God wants us to live with a gospel motivation. Uh, if Austin did it, we have our sheets in the back table uh, so you can grab one that's got some more follow-up questions so you can uh, talk through together in your scrip scripture and action time. Uh, Jesus was motivated by the gospel in raising Lazarus. And you look at the passage, and you could find all sorts of other motivations that might have been true, but it's the gospel that was the overriding motivation. And that ought to be our motivation in what we do as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for raising Lazarus, even though it meant he had to die again. Even though it meant that his family and loved ones were going to have to mourn again at some other later point. Thank you for raising him because it, it demonstrated to all who were there and it reminds us that you truly, uh, that Jesus truly is God, that he truly has power over death and that, that his resurrection uh, that, that came just uh, relatively soon after that uh, was proof that we too will rise again should we die before you come. Lord, thank you for that confident hope that you give us because of, of what your word tells us. Lord, help us to, uh, to like your son, uh, go out and do things that are motivated by a desire for people to know you and to know you as their Savior. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, we ask for a, a, your, your hand of blessing upon our conversations as we go from this place. In your son's name, amen.